Blog Talk Radio. Today 
Central Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thank you. Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and the fellow panelists and listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we bring Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, peace, Brother Africa. <clears throat> My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Kind of with African awareness, and I'm all about institution building. Uh, you know, recently I read an article, and they talked about the fact that prosecutors in Sicily are contemplating investigations, according to uh, some survivors of allegations, the USS warship, the Trenton, uh, ignored um, distressed um, uh, people uh, on a dinghy inside, outside the ocean. Um, it reports that as a result of the, the, the ship, Ignoring those those individuals on a dinghy, 76 Africans drowned outside the coast of uh, Sicily, uh, and it, and and this is according to La excuse me La Repubblica newspaper uh, when they talked interviewed six survivors who actually talked about that. Now this is not an isolated incident. Um, before that, prior to that, according to the Greek vessel the Leon Hermes, U.S. ship um, a U.S. ship did a similar kind of thing. In which you know uh, immigrants were um, were ignored to their own peril. Uh, they talked about the fact that uh, the ship uh, re- um, via radio contact, you know, heard the radio transmission, and they talked about the fact that the U.S. warship was in fact in proximity to the grounding immigrants, but refused to intervene to to save them from drowning. So it also goes to show that one of the things that we, I think we got to be very very clear on when we talk about the the, the uh, spread of fascism. We're not just talking about fascism in America. We're talking about fascism throughout the world. And clearly we got right-wing forces throughout the world facilitated by, you know, uh, uh, the uh, CIA maneuvering, uh, which is geared toward uh, using immigrants for the sole purpose in terms of furthering the objectives of more fascism. So we've got to be very, very concerned in terms of the growing insensitivity, the growing cruelty uh, of people, particularly immigrants. It speaks, it speaks volumes in terms of, uh, what awaits so many people right here in America? You know, as fascism continues to get stronger and stronger in society. But again, um, we got to be concerned. But we need institutions uh, to adequately address this stuff, and to bring to consciousness just why it's important that we address this stuff. In any event, I want to thank you, Brother Africa, for having me, and peace and blessings to everybody with the sound of my voice. Thank you, Father and Brother Aki, bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism back in a government class in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, to often finish of my faith, and that my faith tongue is this messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. All right, Brother Moses, we're bringing Brother Jabari. Welcome, Brother Jabari. Thank you, Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program. As usual, I appreciate the opportunity to participate with my fellow panelists. Peace, everybody. 
And we also now will bring in our sister, Sister Hattie. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. And I am Sister Hattie, a retired public school administrator and teacher. And currently I am working on uh, building an organization for women called Women United. And we certainly support women in all aspects of their lives throughout the uh, African diaspora as well as, of course, the U.S. And we look to support women at wherever they are on the scheme of things in life and just meet them wherever they are. So thank you for inviting me to be a panelist, and thank you for having the show. It's always a great honor. Thank you, Sister Haney. So listen, audience, like always, we're going to start off with the first segment of this program of what's going on in your world and the community from our analysts. And then it will be followed by a discussion as relates around our theme, which is tonight. It's a continuation from last program. This is part two of This Is How They Do It, the game being played. This is how they do it. So we want you to sit back, feel, in, feel comfortable to call in and share your wisdom with us. Again, you can do that, 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. But if we're going to march our people towards victory, we got to understand how they do the things they do and why they do it. So we're going to attempt to address some of these um issues of how they do it by having this discussion tonight. So right now, on the first segment, what's going on in your world and the community? We ask you, Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, certainly. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, this Thursday, uh, November 15th, marks the 20th anniversary of uh, Brother Kwame Ture's transition. And um, he devoted his life uh, to, you know, trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get our people to understand the game being played. And uh, he was a victim of it, unfortunately, but he spent his life fighting and, 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 uh, pushing other, uh, you know, uh, Africans to organize to fight against our oppression. So we definitely, uh, you know, uh, need to uh, reflect and, uh, you know, continue to carry on his memory. Also, um, it seems like there was a controversy over the, the, the recent elections in the Senate and gubernatorial races in Florida, which uh, seems to be uh, which seems to be stand out because uh, Florida has a long history of uh, uh, political corruption, especially uh, through disenfranchisement of the African voters that live in that state. And I uh, heard that and that about three hundred thousand uh africans were 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 not uh were, were not allowed to vote in Georgia because they allegedly had moved, which turned out not to be the case 
So, uh, you know, it seems that uh, corruption uh, around election time seems to be pretty rampant inside the U.S. Brother Anthony, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the Georgia election, one of the candidates who ran for governor was the governor of East of Georgia, Florida, but I think it was Georgia, one that were ahead of the, of the voting process. And ordinarily, if you're going to run for a seat of that status, you have to um, give up your present position. But he chose not to and continue to oversee the process, even though he um, controlled and had access to all of the voters in terms of him being head of that particular agency. And the question that many people ask is, how was he able to do that? Well, again, people ask the question, but there was never no response to it. So, again, this question of democracy is something, is something to be looked at within, within the context of the U.S. Um, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, let's go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, let me just piggyback on something that Brother Anthony said in respect to the rigged voting system. Uh, there have been numerous articles you know, published about this phenomenon. One of the things that's very, very interesting, uh, well, actually, quite a few things that are very interesting, but one of the things that I find very, very interesting is the fact that, you know, 50 million eligible voters in the United States are not registered to vote. Now, the irony is that if voting is so important, why is it that people must take additional steps just to do what constitutionally is required of them, what is expected of them? The mere fact that you don't want to put a million people to vote suspects, suggests that there are people whose interests are served by people not voting. So this question in terms of democracy is somewhat of a, somewhat of a, um, um, somewhat disingenuous. In fact, that uh, one of the things that the people in power realize that by keeping voting turnout low, when they ensure that Republicans will prevail, which may be explain why in a country that's predominantly Democrats, Republicans consistently keep winning. Also, one of the things that when we talk about, um, you know, the election day, one of the things, election day is that, you know, it's a day when most people have to work. And it seems to me if, if democracy is that important, then why don't they have a mandated day off in which people have opportunity to actually get to the vote, get to the, to the polls to vote? So that, is, I think, in and of itself is problematic. Now, one of the things that, you know, your brother has alluded to in terms of gerrymandering, you know, one of the things that we set these districts, you know, one of the things um, Republicans have been very good at in terms of achieving is creating these odd-shaped districts to ensure that the voting power of racial ethnic minorities are somewhat undermined. And so, therefore, it ensures that you have a favorable outcome, which is namely that Republicans, you know, come to power. And I find that, you know, uh, very criminal. Uh, you know, in, in America, 6.1 million people, particular felons, are able to vote. Now, in other countries uh, around the world, People who did that time are able to um, utilize their privilege in terms of being able to vote. Uh, in America, people are disenfranchised simply because they were at some point in prison. So it seems to me that this question in terms of democracy is a very, very important one, and that in fact, if a democracy exists, that this simply these kinds of maneuvering would simply be unacceptable, um, you know, to 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 the powers that be. But the mere fact that the powers that be relish or in, to a large extent support these kinds of uh, these kinds of strategies suggest that um, a democracy is not democracy as we know it, but democracy that serves the interests of a few. So I think that uh, it's something that we seriously got to be concerned about 
in America. And to add to that point also, Haki, the question again must be raised on this concept of democracy in America is that if African people are citizens, why every 20 years they have to approve a civil rights act for African people to vote? Why is it they are the only group of people where they have this special consideration? I agree. I agree. You're preaching to the choir. I've been saying that for a long, long time. One of the things is that every 20 years the Voters' Rights Act has to be uh, um, has to be um, <clears throat> has to be uh, reaffirmed. The mere fact that if you're a citizen, that's so absurd to say that every twenty ye- every twenty years, you know, we got to give you the right to vote, you know, simply because your status as a citizen is some- somehow questionable. Or either you're a citizen or you're not. My position is that when you give the history, look at the history of the United States, you look at the Constitution in terms of its amendments, and clearly African people are not considered citizens of the United States even though a lot of us like to believe in the fact that we're citizens of the United States. But clearly when you look at the practice in terms of the kind of policies enacted against African people's self-interest, uh, then clearly then those positions of power come from a position that African people are, in fact, you know, not citizenry but something else. So you're right. So the mere fact that every 20 years this, 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 this voting act has to be reaffirmed to justify you know, African people voting, it's values in terms of what they really feel in terms of you know, whether or not African people Represent citizenry you know, in this country. Hey, little brothers and Bobby, before we come to you, I would like to open this question up for a discussion uh, for all our panelists right now. Since we got America to democracy on trial, uh, one other contradiction in terms of the so called concept of democracy is around this question of um, uh, choices. We recognize again, if we look at this past election, all of this money went into endorsing these D candidates, paying millions and millions of dollars in commercials, and candidates have to raise so much money just to even be put on the ballot. What, 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 is, what is this all about? Why all this money is at play if so much about democracy? And do we truly believe that if someone has to invest million dollars in order for you to run as a candidate, how much freedom would you have? Hell, as individual to vote your own will. So, panelists, what's up with that? Well, the thing people have to understand, when you look at the trends in the structure in terms of how our government system is set up, it's not a win in situations where anybody that doesn't have money. Because the thing we have to realize is that the politicians only take seriously those people who um, know their power and know how to utilize it. Those are who they focus on. Those are the ones that only see the results in terms of the elections we have because we've got to keep in mind with the way it's set up. Even though we saw a flip in terms of the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives is the initial hurdle for legislation. Then it goes to the Senate. And given um, not only is there Republican control of the Senate, but when we look at how the vice president, if there's a tie, he can cast his vote, that's clear that the power of the vehicle will get their way because we know how Pence will make the decision. We've seen it happen before, so we see the trend. So people got to understand they need to stop falling for this illusion that it's actually fair and balanced. I would add also that uh, because of the cost of running a campaign, it is virtually impossible for an individual from the working class uh, to run a campaign uh, without support 
of uh, 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 corporate funding or, or, or big money uh, individual donors. And that's by design, so that keeps uh, access to political office within the hands, uh, uh, you know, of uh, the high end of the petty bourgeoisie or the 1%. Uh, because uh, the overwhelming majority of people do not have the resources uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to spend millions and millions of dollars on an election campaign. So that is uh, by design, and that is uh, one of the the major deficiencies of this so-called democratic process. Not contrary to pop police, not just anyone can, uh, uh, you know, uh, can uh, uh, can run for office. They got a total line of the uh, 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 of the, the of the ruling duopoly, and they also have to, uh, uh, you know, they also be holding to these special interests that fund their campaigns. That is why you ne- uh, you rarely hear, uh, especially. Uh, at the state and national levels of any uh, uh, of anybody coming from the grassroots, uh, you know, w- w- winning an election, because it's almost possible because of economics of it. Well, when it, well, when the Supreme Court had Citizens United, when they started equating money with free speech, they clearly. The people who have access to free speech have uh, in a position to, in fact, uh, determine the outcome of these elections. Uh, for, for example, in Virginia, they had a, a former CAA uh, person uh, who ran for uh, congressperson. And uh, she won in part because of large sums of money, dark money, that flooded into the state to support her. And as a consequence, you know, she was elected. Now, she was elected not because she understands nuances in terms of the political system, but because she firsthand understands, at least in her estimation, her obligation is to support the system at all costs. And so, therefore, those people with the money understood that to have her in that position is tantamount to their own self-interest. So clearly, you know, Brother Anthony is absolutely correct. When you start talking about these large infusion of sums, then they own these candidates. And clearly, there's a clear payoff in terms of, in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, when, when these people invest this kind of money, you know, uh, you know, in these politicians, uh, you know, recently the uh, the Sunlight Foundation did a study, and they found, you know, that for every dollar uh, these these corporations, these wealthy individuals spend on politicians, they get a return of seven hundred and sixty dollars. So clearly, it's it's a wise investment in terms of you know backing these these politicians because once you pay for them, you not only own them, but they have to do in terms of what you what you want. Because what happens is that in order for them to maintain the privilege in terms of being Congress or Senate, and if all the perks go along with that, you must play ball, and they understand that. So this whole, this whole this sort of subtle kind of process, which, which tends to bribe, uh, is, is useful in terms of not only ensuring that people uh, of a certain class become politicians, but also to ensure that the will of the elite gets reflected. So clearly it's a very corrupt system, and that's still getting around that. I mean, there are exceptions. The sister out of New York won. But you know, bless her heart. I mean, she won. You know, um, you had a few sisters out in the Midwest who won, bless their heart, despite you know the, um, the overwhelming obstacles they had to overcome. But the bottom line is that any time a, a process exists, 
where you're funded by wealthy people, they're not doing it because they're altruistic or they give a damn about the suffering the masses of folks. They're doing it because of selfish interest, and we have to understand that clearly. And so, therefore, anytime you talk about large infusions of money to back a candidate, then you got to be very, very concerned. But you know, Haki, speaking to your example you just raised about the nature of the candidates that may be available to the people, also I think it shows um, some of the contradictions in the system as it relates to the people development and their lack, maybe lack of consciousness. Because it's really interesting where you can openly run a, CIA, a former CIA agent openly, run on the record as being an agent, and people have no problem with it and vote for Clearly, you know, it has to say something about the level of the political maturity and consciousness of the people. Would y'all panelists not agree with that assessment? I agree. And I would add also that um, that reflects uh, the fact that most of these get-out-the-vote campaigns do lack a political education component, and uh, and the thing is that you, you know a lot of the, a lot of these efforts do not involve teaching people, uh, you know, uh, a political history and how to use the vote effectively as a weapon, and you can only do that if you're an organized people. And uh, and and that is and that continues to be our most serious problem, our overall lack of organization, especially independent organization. And uh, and uh, when you go into coalitions being disorganized, you end up getting used for other people's ends. And uh, when they finish. Uh, Use you that you know you uh, you're cast aside, and uh, there's been a long history of that, and uh, that's why uh, you know uh, you know some African revolutionaries emphasized the importance of independent political organization and political education, because voting is merely a first step. And uh, maybe a critical step, but it's only a step in the process. It is not to be an end all of political involvement. And I think, and I think, um, uh, I, more I, people need to understand that that it also involves, uh, uh, you know, uh, understanding the ins and outs of the system and holding people accountable when they make these promises. All right, let's yeah, go on the, 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 yeah, the whole system, uh, the whole propaganda system is predicated on the idea that as long as you can keep people informed, then they'll essentially, you know, vote against their own interests. Uh, so clearly... Uh, we want people to be informed in terms of the nuances in terms of how the political system works. But the bottom line, unless you've got a, a system in place or organization or institution in place that to, 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 to elevate people's understanding of how, how politics works, then they don't really understand how it works. You're right. Anytime you vote for a CIA agent, I mean, you seriously think that a CIA agent is going to do anything 
that's going to expose the system for what it is, then you got another thing coming. That's something not going to happen. The CIA agent's job always been number one, despite despite the injustice of it all, is to up to prop up the system, and that's what it, the CIA agent's job. That's their job. And so therefore, you don't seriously think they're going to come in and dissect uh, the system in terms of you know the is inefficiencies or is injustice or 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 or, or the blatant cronyism uh, that exists in the system. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But people think that, in fact, by voting with CIA agents that you're doing a very good thing. But they think so because people are not educating society. Uh, America is one of the most propagandized societies on the planet. And it is reflected in terms of when you talk to people, the kind of things that they say, the kind of views that they hold, which are very clear that they have no real understanding in terms of, you know, how the system operates. And so, therefore, those are the people in the position of power. Uh, understand they got a system behind them. They got the media, they got the courts, uh, they got the um, the schools. They got all these systems behind them to sort of reinforce this kind of negativity in the minds of a lot of, of a lot of folks. And so, therefore, when people vote against their own interests, they don't understand they're voting against their own interests. They think they're doing something that's intelligent. But of course, that's the conditioning. And so that's why it's so important to have organizations, institutions, to get people to start thinking about this stuff. Because if we can't get them to start thinking about this stuff, we can't reasonably expect them to, to evolve their consciousness where they understand and where they can deconstruct the lies that they have been bombarded with in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So this is the fundamental problem that we're facing. But it does speak volumes in terms of the lack of political clarity that exists in American society, well, throughout the world for that matter, in terms of people understanding political systems. Okay, Brother Zabari, what's going on in your world and the community? Yes, I recently read an article about a law that was passed in California. And the law states that it's on record now if a doctor is on probation because they violated a patient's rights, they have to notify all of their other patients because of that um, probation. That's an interesting law. That kind of law sounds like it should be federal, a federal, a federal law instead of state Indeed, law. Indeed, but the thing is, not only that, but the question remains: What were the developments that lead to an announcement like this being made? Because this should have been a norm anyway. And why is it just now becoming the norm? Mm-hmm. I think we're in agreement with you. All right, let's move on to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, it's been an interesting week. Uh, of course, the elections have been a big thing. Uh, um, the mayor of, of D.C., Mayor Bowser, was reelected, and she came out uh, the, since the second term, I suppose, that she would be for... for um, Recreational uh, marijuana use, and uh, because right now in D.C. you can you can have you can possess marijuana, but you can't you can't uh, uh, buy it, and um, and, and so she came out for recreational use. Then there's um, the jealous Ben Jealous, the ex-head of the NAACP, was running for governor of of Maryland, and he lost, and. Uh, 
Meanwhile, Sharice uh, Davis of New York, no, of of, uh, of Kansas, became the first Native American Congresswoman, and uh, she'll be coming to D.C. Also, the first Black Congresswoman to represent Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley, will be coming to D.C. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of New York, who's the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. And so, you know, there's been a, a, some cosmetic changes in, in uh, and uh, maybe there'll be some voices that will uh, side with the oppressed and, uh, and oppose this Trump agenda. Um, other than that, it's, it's been uh, uh, the usual, the... Uh, protests around the the uh, the Yemen Yemen war and stuff still going on and um, and you know there's the situation in D.C. hasn't really changed in terms of the 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 uh, unemployment and uh, and uh, gentrification taking place housing crisis, but uh, hopefully we'll get organized more this year and uh, and fight back better. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Sister Haiti, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, we have two campaigns going on now, and um, Women United is seeking to do a um campaign on Black Women Wisdom 90 and Up, where we're talking with and um, doing some uh, collaboration of Black women who are 90 years old and up, so that we can bridge the gap between those who are wise and who've lived a while and those who are uh, younger than that. Uh, That's the uh, Black Women Wisdom 90 and Up, so if Anyone knows a black woman, African woman, who is 90 years old and up will go wherever she is and interview her. Ultimately, the campaign will have a table book that will uh, give us a collaboration of wise sayings from uh, black women who are our seniors and mothers. Uh, The uh, second campaign that we're just starting is a student exchange program from Africa. If we recall, we haven't had one of those in a long time. Um, There used to be an opportunity for people to come to study here in this country who chose to and would uh, had, of course, the uh, requirements to get into the universities and community colleges here and technical schools. And so we're beefing that up again to have Young women start to do that, and men too, young men. But mainly we are going to focus on the women because the women, the young women, uh, do have special challenges and struggles from the continent that will help them to get uh, further their education. So those are, what, those are the two um, campaigns that we're currently working on, the Women United, and if anybody would like to, Help us out with that. They can go to Women United seven 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 dot org and um, 
hit the contact button. And uh, and if you have some recommendations for women 90 years old and up, hit the contact button and uh, leave us your name and we'll be contacting you or leave us the name of the woman that you know that's a black woman 90 years old and up. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Hattie. Uh, panelists, I have a couple things I would like to just raise with you and the rest of the world and get your response to this. In terms of my current events for this week, as you know, many people, are, uh, particularly Europeans, are celebrating the 100th anniversary, anniversary of the ending of World War One. Now, recently, um, Donald Trump is now in Europe visiting visiting the various European presidents uh, throughout Europe. And the president of France made an interesting statement this weekend where he stated that he agreed that Europe should pay more more money towards the defense of NATO, while at the same time making this real interesting statement. I'd like to get your response to it. And his statement was, was paraphrased in the context of that Europe should develop an all-European army, the army in defense of possible wars with possible Russia, China, or even the U.S. Now, what y'all make of that statement? Um, I think yeah, it's a reflection. Um, when, no, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, but after? Yeah. No, I was saying, I was saying that it uh, is reflection of the competitive nature of imperialism, and uh, right now, uh, you know, uh, the situation is capitalism around the world is in crisis because it is depleting the resources of the world. So there's a scramble for a redivision of the world. And uh, France uh, has it has historically is looking out uh, for uh, you know its own self-interest and those of Europe overall. Now there is an uneasy alliance between the various imperialist countries, spearheaded by the U.S. But it's a sign that uh, that uh, that there's that there might be a concern around the world. That U- U.S. hegemony is uh, slipping, and uh, there is a, a there is a power shift going on, and a lot of people don't understand that. But I mean, uh, as but it is a typical pattern of all empires. Once they rise, they uh, they they reach a peak and then they they begin to fall. And uh, and I think what uh, what it is, uh, I think Europe is trying uh, to gain a competitive edge by looking out for its self-interest in terms of creating its own defense system, kind of unify. But uh, because of those uh, ethnic differences and the competitive nature of capitalism, it's not going to achieve that unification. But it's an attempt. Yeah, it's interesting though. One of the things, you know, following World War One, one of the things that the European Europeans agreed with America was that America 
the dollar will be the, the world uh, currency of reserve. Um, it will be the money that will be used in terms of, you know, um, stimulating, you know, economic activity throughout the world. So as, because the dollar is a world currency, one of the things uh, the, uh, they, they, they agree with the, the Europeans is that you allow us to do that, then what's going to happen? We're going to use our wealth in terms of defending the European continent. Uh, one of the things is that the Europe agreed that, see, but in, in agreeing, one of the things that Europe did was to, in effect, subsidize the United States, you know, by making the dollar the world currency. Uh, but now what's happening is, as Brother Anthony alluded to, now when you talk, when you look at the, the, the economic factors in terms of GDP, particular global GDP, the U.S. has been declining, you know, since the, since the 60s. It's been on a constant decline. And so, therefore, the struggle for resources is becoming more and more intense. And so when, when, so when Trump says to, to Europe, listen, you will spend more for NATO. You will commit more troops to attacking nations around the world. You will undermine your economy um, for the purpose you know, of imperialism. Well, your position is that, listen, we have a population you know, to feed, to house, to educate. Uh, we agreed after World War One that we will allow you to use that dollar's world currency in exchange, you know, that you will provide protection for the European Union, and we're going to hold you to that. And Trump is saying that, no, 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 that argument is, is, is archaic, it's old, it's no longer relevant, and you will do as we're told. But, but again, it's, it's, it's essentially it's, it speaks to the kind of desperation in terms of that imperialism is confronted with, and so Trump is adamant that you told the line. Now, Macron of France understands if, in fact, the European nations told the line, then they understand that there is no future for Europe, that Europe will become a vessel of America. And that is the big struggle. And one of the things is Europe is so, so um, terrified by the prospects of, Europe, of, of, of America colonizing them that they're even talking about creating their own uh, currency exchange system. They're going to go outside of SWIFT, uh, which the U.S. controls, and they're going to create their own currency with their, their own system using the euro as a source of exchange with other nations, in particular with starting with Iran. So clearly uh, this is a desperation as far as America is concerned, and so you know, all this maneuvering by Trump speaks to that desperation, but unfortunately the Europeans will take the position that, listen, we got to do what we got to do to survive because if we don't, we're going to become not only a vessel, but we become a colonized nation of the United States, and that they're not going to have. So that's the, I think that's the sequential um, problem in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and Europe. Anyone else like to respond to that? If not, let's move to your response on this question as relates to this concept of global warming. We saw recently and still going on in California, they're having major fires um, in the state of California. I know the area in the Malibu area and one of the most rich and wealthy areas, they have been hit very hard in terms of uh, homes being lost to fire, major homes, very expensive homes. Um, now, they never equated to the cost of these fires, even for man-made or someone, or nature-made. What do y'all make of this um how we dealing with how this country dealing with these major fires that are taking place in these cities and the impact that they may be having on these 
Well, you know, the, the whole problem in terms of global warming, Brother Africa, is that a lot of people in positions of power don't believe global warming exists. Even though statistically, when you look at in terms of the, the extremes in terms of the weather, and we look at a, a, you know, the rising temperature you know, of, the war, of the oceans, uh, despite it all, they maintain that it doesn't exist. And because they maintain it doesn't exist, the, the planet is, in fact, heating up. And so which means you've got a tremendous amount of dryness, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of places around the country that are prone to these kind of brush fires. And California is a quintessential example. Uh, one of the things that if, in fact, it was, just, it was something as a result of someone setting a fire, then by this point they would have told us. But I suspect that, you know, because it was a brush fire, and for those who understand the, the, the impact of global warming, they understand one plus one equal two, and so therefore global warming brush fires make sense. And so, therefore, that is something that the media doesn't want the people to concentrate on because once they start understanding global warming is real, then there might be a considerable effort among the populace to demand some serious changes in terms of, you know, uh, getting, you know, preventing business as usual when it comes to the environment. Uh, but I think that um, until both these people in positions of power acknowledge that global warming exists, they're going to persist with policies which are antithetical to the interests of the planet, the planet will continue to heat up. And so in, in increasingly we've seen these violent storms, you know, and these tornadoes, you know, and uh, we all understand that it's, 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 that we understand that it's, it's the reason they exist is because of global warming. So we understand that, uh, you know, but, we, but, but unless we work collectively together, you know, to put pressure on those positions of power, positions of power, then we can anticipate more those kind of fires, those kind of storms, those kind of tornadoes you know, as it become more and more powerful as that planet continues to heat up. Not to mention you know, the kind of drought that is uh that is inevitable when you get when you talk about the planet heating up and uh um the, the inability to grow food simply because the, the soil becomes becomes unusable. Yeah, I also wonder where all of these um loss of homes where the insurance companies pay up. And if not, what would the individuals do? Who will cause um, major losses? Anyone have an idea? Well, um, well, typically in in a situation like this, if they uh, uh, let's see, if they if they do have insurance coverage, and insurance pays it, uh, the the people that are the victims are gonna uh, that those that survive rather. They are gonna they're gonna end up pay, paying higher insurance rates. Is that premiums are gonna go up if they can get insured at all? And um, and I concur with all the points Haki made. I would add also is that um, is that the way uh, California uh, developed and the U.S. overall for that matter is highly irrational and uh spontaneous and uh it doesn't take in uh and uh is putting a lot of strain on on the land and uh you know and uh and and uh, the resources because of california's population and the lifestyle of the uh you know uh you know bourgeoisie there is depleting the resources of the land and uh, so uh, there's a de- uh, things as if uh, because of climate change, there's a de- de- there's, 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 
desertification going on. In other words, the desert in California, California is drying up. And and as is, they already, they already import drinking water from other uh, states, particularly in uh, Colorado. And uh, there's a big political controversy uh, among the Western states in that regard because uh, it's a question of whether or not that that uh, that'll continue to sustain the West Coast population, and uh, so uh, so it's um, it's both uh, uh, a combination of uh, climate change and uh, a consequence of uh, overuse of the land that's contributing to that situation. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I, I don't. When it comes to the when it comes to the insurance policies, you know, you know, around the homes, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the insurance companies going to the usual two step. They're going to try to find some kind of way to get around the contract to justify you not paying the homeowners based upon some nefarious notion that their house was destroyed by some factor not covered by the insurance policy. I think it's going to be a stretch, though, because these people in Malibu got deep pockets. And so, therefore, even if the insurance companies attempt to do that, they can fight them. So, at the very minimum, we can anticipate that those those homeowners in Malibu will get some of their money back, uh, as opposed to, let's say, rank and file, who, let's say, in Texas or Oklahoma, and I'm sorry, Texas, or who, who filed during, the, during that, um, that storm, who filed for coverage. Uh, found out that they want to get one red, one set, simply because they have deep, deep pockets, deep pockets to uh, to actually fight the insurance companies. But I think in the situation of, of Malibu, because they got deep pockets, the insurance companies have to respect that, and so therefore, then they're going to get some of that money back, uh, maybe not in, in its entirety. But clearly, insurance companies prepare for this kind of thing, and what do you have? Anything you have to do to prevent the payouts, that's what they're going to do, because they're in the business of making money. And not the business of doing what they're supposed to do in terms of, you know, um, paying, uh, when, you know, when there's a, some kind of calamity. So I, I, I think that it is, it's a mixed bag. I think, but the wealth, but the wealth of people who have virtual wealth, uh, are going to be affected, but not as greatly as say the working class, uh, who was affected by the storm in Texas. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to add. Yes, please, um, is uh, he talks about the economic piece of what's going on. Uh, I think most of those families are wealthy that, you know, that are impacted by those fires in California. And the interesting thing to me will be whether or not the insurance companies will take care of them and or if FEMA will step in and step up uh, with all the storms and hurricanes that we've had, and they're, you know, getting to be more and more, FEMA has shown that it will not take any responsibility or support or help individuals, for instance, out of hurricane that hit uh, the Carolinas on the coast there near Wilmington, and uh, we were talking about that. My pastor today um, talked about them visiting, he and some of the other um, leaders of the church, visiting these rural communities 
that were off of um, the shore there, and they they are they're rural and they're poor, and people are in really bad condition there. And what the uh, insurance companies have told those individuals around the hurricane disaster, the last one that hit in North Carolina, is that they're going to have to take out loans to get their home back in order, built up so that they're livable again. Um, these people are out of their homes. Uh, they, they just have had to abandon their homes because um, there's been no help there for them on any level. And these are people that are not like the folks in California and Malibu. And if it stands like it has been standing in this country, even when you go, go back to Hurricane Katrina, in Hurricane Katrina, the people that, that, that were in, you know, middle and upper middle income and, and wealthier folks that were affected by that, the insurance companies definitely um, supported them, but those individuals that were poor in that one certain ward there, even if they had insurance, they were giving them hard trouble because these people know that these are the individuals that are kind of hanging on by a thread on the fringes as it is just to keep their insurance payments up. And so, you know, they feel like they're great targets for just a, a consoling uh, capitalist by not doing anything for them, not even abiding by their contract unless they're taken to court. And so what some of the people are doing from my church is gathering up a community of lawyers that will help these individuals down on the coast to go through the paperwork and that sort of thing, even to get these loans that you know are going to be there, there's going to be a lot of red tape to even get. But then once you get these loans, if the economy has been, uh, you know, terribly affected, which it has, the jobs are not there anymore, um, how are you going to pay back these loans? And so it's kind of a double-edged sword for people. So I would be really uh, interested to see if FEMA's going to do anything or like Donald Trump said, uh, what did he say, that it was these firefighters, uh, not firefighters, but the, um, yeah, I guess they would be firefighters that that, that were uh, manning this operation. He said they were negligent in a way. And so this man just says things that causes people to get anxious about him with no regard for what it what it does or what it's going to do to people. You know, so uh, it will be interesting to see if the wealthy in California are going to get the same treatment from FEMA as those individuals have done over in um, the Carolinas with that, with that particular hurricane, that last one that hit. And so if I could digress one moment, you know, I wanted to add one thing to the other conversation about um, that you were having about the, the uh, well, I'm going to say about the United Nations and that, that piece where the Secretary General of the United Nations um, reportedly said during that time when um, Trump was over there in um, New York or wherever it was, but at, at any point, he was talking about how the United Nations warns of increasing chaotic world order. And he talked about how uh, they are supposed to be 
it's becoming more difficult for them to, for the world order to deal with uh, the power relations and it's less clear for them to be able to handle and balance the power and the risk of confrontation. And so, um, what's his name? Antonio, what is it, Guerrero, Guterres? Um, so this world deal where Trump was laughed at back in the last month, you know, these people seem to be very worried about the chaos that is presenting itself. And he talked about um, this, the, you know, the building of the wall and how that was uh, perceived by the world. And the, he came on right before Trump did, of course. But I was thinking about that and him cause, causing all this chaos. And he didn't say anybody in particular, but I know that uh, he was talking about the U.S., I think, a presenting all this chaos. So um, that's what we have here is more and more chaos. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Haiti. All right, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this call. We're going to take a station break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the theme, part two. This is how they do it, the game being played. And we're going to talk about a case in Virginia where the Virginia judge says that the Virginia's courts, the judiciary courts, is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. We're going to talk about that and discuss its impact that it may have on other states in this country. But right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and we'll be right back. And you are listening to Africa on the Moon.
Africa on the move. We are fighting upon their arrival and still fighting for their survival. This has been the history of African people since they have been displaced all over the world. Right now, we'd like to welcome you back. We're going to now go into discussion of the theme tonight, part two. This is how they do it. The game being played. And that was an interesting article um, titled, Virginia Judge Says Courts That's Subject to Freedom of Information Act Request. Um, you can go to the source of watchdog.org, October 24th, and check this article out. Here's an article of interest because one of the things you know about in this country is that there are certain states are trend-making, and they set the political direction, and Virginia seems to be one of them. And let me just read just a little bit about this article, article from the writer Tyler Honor. It states that a decision in the circuit court a decision ritual will make it more difficult for a public to obtain records from Virginia courts. In a court order, a judge block a man from obtaining records of long-distance phone calls from the Supreme Court of Virginia Office of the Executive Secretary through the Virginia Freedom of Information Act. The order said that the FOIA laws do not allow judiciary branch, rather they only apply to the legislators and executive branch. That is something very interesting when you talk about transparency and what all of this corruption is going on now, particularly under this present administration. We now are talking about laws that will protect this particular branch, uh, more freedom to do things in the dark. Brother Jabari, when you read this article, what are some of the major issues you think we should have concern with? How did you view this article, Brother Jabari? First and foremost, considering this is a state-based, and first and foremost, people have to understand that public record does not mean public act. Excuse me. Public um, availability does not equate to public access because there's a lot of things that this state that is public record, but still you have to go through certain channels in order to access the information. Clearly, that's what this case is speaking to because the person um, went through the procedure of filing the Freedom of Information Act request. And it's very interesting the request was denied because one thing that you notice as you read the article, there was no previous precedent for the decision that was set forth. The rationale given, if you just give me one second, I'll find what the rationale given for the case was. One second. It basically said that it would be a conflict of interest in regards to the information that was being seeking to be obtained by the caller. But the question you have to ask is that the documents that set forth the rationale for decision, if the caller did not have access to research what they said, what is the real justification? Because here's what the article states. The order says the judge agreed with the executive secretary's motion to dismiss because the executive secretary filings and oral, because of reasons set forth in the executive secretary's filings and oral arguments. If you don't have access to see what's in those filings and oral arguments, how are you to say that this is a reasonable justification in terms of the denial? So anytime you withhold the information because it's going to be supporting your cause, you create a situation where there's a gray area. 
And that's what we're dealing with. It's not something that was clear cut. And the thing you have to ask is this going to set forth a precedent in other decisions when people see this kind of decision, this stuff, this nature being made. Because given the current things going on with the current administration, this will be something that they would love to do in terms of an executive order saying that the judiciary cannot have a, um, be exempt from an FOIA request. And there's always in the state of if there's the state of Virginia to a state of emergency, there could be laws put on the books without question that said that that could be permanent, not just relegated to this one case. So those are the things you got to understand. This could set up a very difficult long-term precedent, not just be a blip. You know, what's what I made you by You know, Brother Hackey, one of the things I'm not clearly in panelists, maybe y'all can weigh in on this, start with Brother Hackey. I'm not quite sure how to distinguish the specialty or what's the difference between the legislative why would not apply to them versus the other two bodies, the legislative and the, and the, and the, and the executive. Can you uh, give me your take on this, Brother Haki? Brother, Brother Africa, I'm, I'm, equally, I'm equally perturbed because it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, my reading in terms of U.S. history as it relates to, to the country was that the three different branches of government are all equal, and so therefore if they're equal, then certainly... Uh, in terms of policies and laws, that they are bound by those policies and laws equally. Uh, the mere fact that he says that the, the, in his, according to the state constitution of Virginia, that somehow, and this is a, this is a direct quote, uh, the judicial branch is separate but co-equal to executive legislation branch, end quote. Well, you know what, you can't have it both ways. You can't tell me that it's separate and it's co-equal. It's got to be one or the other. Uh, if, it's, if it's separate, then his reasoning stands. But if the fact of it's co-equal, then it seems to me it has to be bound by laws that also affect legislative and executive branch as well. So it's a sort of convoluted logic. Uh, it goes beyond legalese. It's just it's very convoluted. I suspect that um, in, in, in order for this man to obtain his records in terms of the call that he made, there was a lot of other calls made to, you know, made, you know um, <clears throat> maybe, um, to, to places that are of dubious nature in which they don't want to be exposed, and so therefore they denied his freedom of information request. But just in terms of the 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 the, the, uh, the logic behind the, the the ruling, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But I do agree with Jabari that you know one of the things you know when we talk about a precedent, uh, one of the things you have to be very very concerned that other states look at this ridiculous ruling, and um, and make a similar ruling. And then until it's challenged in the Supreme Court, it becomes the law of the land. And so, therefore, for me, I have a very difficult problem with that. Particularly, keep in mind that when you talk about, you know, um, access to information, one of the things the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court, allows you access uh, on case findings. And so, therefore, if the Supreme Court, the law of the land, uh, at least the institutions that represent the law of the land, if they can say that case findings are applicable, that you can utilize the Freedom of Information Act to find out, you know, what's going on with cases, then why would a state take a position that what we do is secretive and you don't have the right to know? So it sets a very, very dangerous precedent. But in a state like Virginia, no one can be surprised uh, in terms of this kind of logic. Uh, you know, it's pretty much uh, a, a old boys' uh, network, and they very much protect each other, and they protect each other very, very well. So I'm not surprised at all, but the ruling to me is problematic. Brother Hackey, um, brother Africa. Can I have one yes, more point, please? 
Mm-hmm. And something else to take note of in an unrelated case, but still a similar precedent being set forth, I know of a situation where um, a person requested um, certain information from the State Corporation Commission, and this person was denied off of the basis because of the way the laws were written, just off of one sentence. They were denied information. They had a very good case otherwise, but because of one sentence, that denied them from getting the information they were seeking. And the judge and the judge who presided even acknowledged they had a good case, but because of one sentence, they were denied. So what does that say in terms of our society if loopholes and tricks and uh, wordplay are the reason we're getting denied? Not because of our content or the reason why we're seeking information, but also loopholes and tricks. That's why we're getting denied or outright told no. Yeah, you know, um, Brother Anthony, many times we must understand laws are based upon certain interests. It gives to a certain to protect certain segments or certain people. When you read this article, um, how did you view it? What came to your mind? Well, um, it seemed like it was uh the argument was made to protect the actions of the judiciary from uh from scrutiny. Now uh, now the, now the, the article does mention that uh FOIA requests uh there are certain exemptions to prevent the release of uh, certain things like personal information such as medical records or information that is confidential. But as was pointed out earlier by uh Haki correctly and uh, you, uh, it seems like it, you know if the, the 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 executive, legislative, and judicial branches are equal, they are e- uh, they are equally uh, they are bound by the same laws with the same exemptions. And uh, so, uh, so 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 aside from that, I, I it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. That, uh, that 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 the judiciary should be any more secretive than any other branch of government, and um, this is uh, critical because it makes it harder for people to understand how decisions are being made, and uh, and to hold institutions accountable for the actions that they take. And uh, so again, this is another uh, is another obstacle in terms of really understanding, uh, you know, why and, and how certain decisions are being made that affect people. Brother Moses, what you make of this 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 tactic to shield uh, transparency from the Virginia? Judiciary system. What do you make of this this, this particular um, article position? Well, I, I would hope that this will get appealed, and uh, because this is a bad precedent, uh, the judiciary, like everyone's been saying, should be equally uh, equal in terms of the legislative and executive branches and the powers, and so subject to the same laws and regulations. Um, uh, I don't understand how the the why he thinks he should protect the judiciary from oversight. 
uh, and public scrutiny. Uh, it's just a bad precedent, and I would hope that it would get appealed, and that it sounds like something the Supreme Court will eventually decide if, if it doesn't get tired in the court lowered it that. Uh, but it's definitely, definitely a bad precedent, and uh, if anybody should be open to to scrutiny, it should be the justice system, uh, this is the court systems, uh, how they make the decisions on trials. I mean, just the foundation of, of the whole law system. And I don't understand why he would think that uh, he should hide, hide the, the justice system, the, the court systems from public scrutiny. Thank you. Yes, Sister Hattie, what is the feel? Even if we're going to balance the balance between the public and the private, the, the public and the private, you're going to balance the two in terms of this question of um, security. What is the major field of trying to get a sense of what type of phone calls and who they may have called would be such a so important that um, the public shouldn't have access to it? What do you take from this article, Sister Andy? Well, I think uh, what you're looking at here, and I agree with what the other panelists said, it's a bad precedent to set in terms of the judicial branch because he says it does not apply to any of the judicial branch. So he's not talking about just just one particular situation. He's saying just the judicial branch, period. However, the... the, uh, Freedom of Information Act doesn't talk about, and never anywhere I've read say say that it is uh, any particular branch. It says all um, agencies or what have you. So I wonder where is he getting that at in terms of how do you understand this ruling? Because the separation of powers, I mean, it kind of, it doesn't make any sense, actually. It's just something for him to throw out there, to, or her, whoever the judge was, uh, that uh, blocks people from from getting information so that they can scrutinize and hold accountable on a different level, you know, from the citizenry level rather than just... Um, these other levels, so I it, it's it's really very bogus when you look at it. Well, panelists, before we uh, make our transition to our next article, I would like for y'all maybe speak to, and I agree with you, Sister Hattie, around this question: Where does this, this ruling come from? According to my understanding of the article, it talks about it came out of some kind of ruling decision that the senior executive committee of the judiciary branch in the state of Virginia uh, had in some set of minutes or something. But if this is how they do it in Virginia, what games would have been played, panelists? Y'all find the thoughts on this. Leading off with Brother Hakeem. You know, you know, Brother Africa, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really not surprised. You know, often have these archaic, you know, uh, inane kind of rulings coming out of Virginia. So I'm not sort of surprised. It's indic- sort of indicative of the mindset of, you know, of, uh, you know, uh, of, you know, of uh, Virginia, uh, the Virginia elite. 
So, you know, even though, you know, this is this, this ruling is, is problematic, I think for them it serves an interest in terms of um, providing them a uh, somewhat uh, shield of, um, of, of secrecy, I think, which is important to them. Because the whole point in terms of just accessing, you know, calls that are made from, from the court building doesn't seem to me to be uh, a violation of the federal, you know, I mean, for the Freedom of Information, Freedom of Information Act. Uh, you're not revealing uh, anything that's um, somehow um, damaging or embarrassing, or, or um, in any in any stretch of the imagination, um, um, disadvantageous toward uh, an individual. You're simply talking about a telephone number that a, that an individual made to a particular business. So therefore, you know clearly, you know this this is one of those things that uh, conceal reveal, conceals more than it reveals. And I suspect that uh, it has more to do in terms of some of the inner workings in terms of the court systems in Virginia as opposed to any really concern in terms of freedom of information, you know, rights. Brother Afton, your final thoughts on this article? Uh, yes. Um, I think, uh, I think it, you know, in order for, for people to understand um, – you know how decisions are made. Transparency is very important because I think, in addition to voting, one of uh, people's responsibilities is to ensure that the, that the, the that the institutions that regulate our lives are functioning the way they should. And you need information in order to be able to ascertain that. Brother Moses, your final thought on this article. Well, you know, Freedom of Information Act is is the Freedom of Information Act, and and it it, it means what it says. Uh, and basically, uh, uh, without without information, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And you know, we we have sunshine laws, and um, and we have a right to know what's going on. And hopefully, this will be overturned. Thank you. Sister Hattie, your final thoughts on this article? Well, the the, the article I said is it's a bogus uh, ruling, and uh, I think it'll probably end up in the Supreme Court, and we know what will happen there. There's always this shield of <laughs> secrecy that everybody wants uh, the the general public not to know certain information but uh it just it just doesn't hold water in terms of what the Freedom of Information Act says. There's nothing in there that says the judicial branch is immune to Freedom of Information Act. So this is a precedent that has, has started and if and if those organizations that do fight for this kind of um freedom of information do not stay on top of it. It's just a precedent that will be set. And it, it, it's, a lot of these things are testing the waters to see if they can get away with doing it with the general public. And so it'll start from there, and it's a bad precedent to set. And it'll, it'll eventually go to the other branches as well, legislative and executive branch of the government. This is, to me, a test to see if, well, let's see how we can, if we can get away with this or not. And um, if people don't raise a fuss and if we slide this one in there, 
this president will be far-reaching. And it's just always another way of not having any transparency in government or in agencies anywhere. So if people don't know what they're doing, they can't respond to what's happening. So, no, it's something somebody made up. Thank you. And Brother Jabari, your final thought on this article. You know, with that situation when the um, explanation was that there were certain documents that justified it, but the person who was presenting the case didn't have access to it. Anytime in court law, it's supposed to be a dialogue where everybody's able to see everything that's being put on the table. If the judiciary is going to make decisions where the person who's a descendant, if um, this person that's being accused can have certain evidence, what they're going to say for other cases when it comes to those who have influence that may have done some dubious things, if everything can be put on the table so you can have a transparent case versus a decision made off of information that wasn't made available to all parties. Well, panelists, points well made to our listening audience. We encourage you to check this article out. Virginia judge says courts not su- subject to freedom of information requests. Uh, go to the watchdog.org, data October 21st, 2018. Because if you want to know how they create the scenario and conditions towards oppressing you as a people, as a society. This is just one of the ways in how they do it. Right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this whole question of government watchdog group saying that $3.1 trillion in potential federal budget saving. We're going to talk about, again, this whole question of deficit and um, how they're going to use this one way as another to play a game that can be used against you. So right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Move. If you don't get up and stand up for your rights, then somebody else will. But this is all 
justified his cuts when he when those cuts when the Congress passed those cuts of one point of one point five um, trillion dollars. Uh, he in fact contributed to the overall deficits because what happens is that when, in this society in America, when we talk about evading taxes, the corporations alone, just corporations, not rich individuals, but corporations alone, uh, evade taxes to the tune of one point seven billion dollars. So she's talking. He's talking about savings of three point one billion dollars over five years. Where if you simply you know, bring, bring in the revenue side and uh, crack down on these corrupt corporations, corrupt wealthy individuals, then you could you could cut that number down to half. You can get that savings within a couple of years, not five years. But again, again, it's not really about it's not really about you know the uh, the budget per se. It's about ensuring enriching the the one percent at the expense of everybody else. Also, this article talks about the fact that the difference between, you know, um, uh, mandatory spending and discretionary spending. Now, this attack against Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid all falls under mandatory spending. Of course, this term mandatory it makes it those sounds as though somehow that they're somehow obligated, um, somehow obligated, you know, um, to do this. But, in fact, these kind of debates take place all the time in terms of expenditures when it comes to Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. One of the things I think is important that I know, Brother Africa, is, is this. When we talk about this, this, this desire in terms of, you know, eliminating Social Security, one of the things that we got to keep in mind, there are reasonable fixes to, 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 to Social Security is on the revenue side, and that is that you can, you can improve the Social Security situation simply by taxing those individuals who make over $128,000 a year and closing government loopholes. That's on the revenue side. But, of course, his position it's all about the spending side, which makes sense as far as she's concerned that, uh, you know, that the only real solution in terms of, in terms of um, you know, uh, Social Security crisis, as they say, is to simply cut it, uh, which just doesn't have to exist. But this is the propaganda that they, that, they, that they spew, you know, daily. Also, when you talk about discretionary spending, you know, one of the things, discretionary spending includes defense spending, health, human services, education, and housing. Well, all of, with the exception of defense, all of those expenditures, particularly when it comes to health and human services, education, and housing, have been consistently being cut. And it started with uh, President uh, Barack Obama. So it didn't just start with, with uh, Trump. It started with Barack Obama. So, so again, this notion in terms of discretionary spending, if you want to get a, 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 a better result in terms of the economy, then one of the things you have to do is you have to bring in more revenues. But in this sense, in terms of defense spending, I won't agree when you talk about cuts. It wouldn't hurt them in terms of cutting defense expenditures because one of the problems in terms of defense expenditures that, you know, recently they lost over $21 trillion, the Defense Department did, $21 trillion, and no, it's unaccounted for. No one knew what the $21 trillion went to. It's simply gone. In addition to that, the Pentagon has an overseas contingency fund in which no one, which, 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 which is, no one really knows what the contingency fund, how much it, how much it, it uh, how much it's, uh, how much it, uh, they put into it. But nonetheless, it exists, and they spend billions and billions of dollars for this overseas consensus fund, and it's not predicated on anybody, any, any congressional vote. It's simply like an arbitrary raise the number as they see fit. So clearly in this regard, in terms of defense spending, I would concur that cutting would be perhaps a good thing in terms of bringing about savings. But that's not a, a vital – he doesn't make that – he doesn't make that point in terms of the article. He makes a point very, very weakly. He talks about the fact that um, – uh, the F-135, of course, was a boondoggle. They had spent, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on this plane that doesn't work, and now they just renewed the contract for additional hundreds of billions of dollars. So clearly there is waste, there's corruption, 
But clearly, um, the solution to the problem is not on the cut side. It's on the revenue side. So if we can clamp down all, all of these loopholes, all this corruption, all this fraud, then you get the revenue that you get in terms of putting the economy on a sound footing. But, of course, we understand the context of the capitalist system. It's not about efficiency. It's all about empowering 1%. And as long as, as long as avenues exist where they can ingratiate themselves to wealth, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to make sure the system makes it possible for them to, to literally rob the system. So this is the problem with the article. You know, Brother Anthony, when I read this article, I also ask myself when they talk about revenues, money that the government will make, are they reporting the revenues where they go all around the world, take loot and steal from other governments? Like the billions they took out of Libya, the billions they've taken out of the Middle East, Iraq. I mean, you name it. Is that money being accounted for, Brother Anthony? And I don't we think. Know that. I don't think so. And um, and the thing about it, though, what it uh, what it is, it uh, because of the U.S.'s of the, uh, of uh, the money spent on military aggression. And uh, you know, and it, and and the money it gets from all these loans that it makes, at exorbitant rates to countries to poor countries around the world. That it that is not, that is not taken into account of. And uh, and uh, if they uh, if if the capitalists weren't so greedy, there would be enough to adequately fund those so-called mandatory spending programs like Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. But those benefit the masses of working people. So it's not really in the interest of the ruling class to, to make sure those programs survive. And, um, you know, and this attack on these programs goes back several decades Ever since, ever since uh, there was a decision made to unravel a lot of programs that were associated with the New, New Deal legislation that was uh, passed under uh, uh, under the Roosevelt administration, and uh, so uh, because again, because a lot of our people don't know. Uh, don't know the history of uh, these developments. They don't understand the game that's being played. You know, speaking of the game being played, one of the games being played, uh, brothers and Bobby and sister Hattie, is that if they're serious about cutting the federal debt, why is it so difficult for them to come up with a process where if they know that part of the amount of money that the government losing is directly related to people that are making making typo mistakes in terms of um, printing wrong figures. They're not watching their figures, but yet they continue to do this. What's up with that, Jabari? Well, you got to understand that capitalism at its core is balanced by design. Never in history has there been any economic system where people have to constantly fight um, and then not only fight but um, use resources, then take resources from others to keep this thing going. So you can understand that this is a manufacturer's charade. 
the only way you're going to keep a charade going is to come up with a lie that people will believe. Because we got to remember, in, in irrational times, rationality only is a view as long as it's presented to us in a convenient package that we can recognize. Because if we're being exploited, but they're playing the matter that we sound comfortable and can enjoy, they're going to continue it. Because you can understand this is where we're facing so much propaganda. We're programmed, and we just accept these um, false economic um, forecasts that they bombard us with on a daily basis. Because at the end of the day, when you look at the economic system we're based off of, it's fiat. There's nothing backing this up. It's not backed up by natural resources. It's all about how people feel. It's all about speculation. It's all about what I say something is worth. That's why every day you always hear about the stock exchange. They have to constantly remind people so they can be stuck in the matrix. But if people will wake up to the reality of what it is, they will realize that it's controlled exploitation. And they play the game over and over again. Why else would they mass market something like Monopoly that's destructive to the people? Same scenario over and over again. Well, I I think that, um, as usual, it's important only for certain people, and we know who those are, the ruling class people, those corporations, and that's what's happening, and uh, that's kind of what's always going to be happening. Certainly, I agree with what everyone else has said in terms of... um, what the whole agenda is, and the agenda has been the same since Ronald Reagan. He kind of really started this era. I think he was the originator of these sorts of things. They've been after Social Security. They've been after Medicare um, for a long time. But um, he kind of put the beginning, um, beginnings, I think, of destroying Social Security because that's really the only place where there is money at in the in the government budget that's kind of still feasible for them to steal. And so I think that's what it's always going to be about. Let's just try to make sure we get this stolen so that, um, you know, the greed, the greed, and the heck with the working class people. I mean, anytime you have this kind of behavior with Mitch McConnell and um, the other one sold the house. What's his name? This retiring out of there. I can't call it right Ryan, now. Ryan. Ryan. Yes, Ryan. Those two get in together to do this. I mean, they've been wanting to do this for the longest. And so they have a, a real good opportunity to do it now. And our only salvation is that now, if they don't do anything really quickly here, when the transition goes with the new. Um, house that it's kind of going to be impossible for them to do that sort of thing in the way and manner in which they uh, were trying to do it. So I think we're safe so far right now. Who knows what's going to happen a little bit later on, though. But, yeah, that that's, that's just been the whole piece. The working class people, people who are not over wealthy are the ones that have always been at risk. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Hattie. You know, Brother Moses, there's an old saying that figures don't lie, but liars do figure. When you look at this piece of propaganda, it gives you the illusion that there's a host of organizations and 
entities and coalitions in agreement with this type of recommendation. That is just on paper. You know, America is very slick with its propaganda in terms of trying to sell the people as if these are sound ideas and suggestions. Does these sound like sound ideas and suggestions to you, Brother Moses? What's your take on this article? No, I think when you get to the bottom line, there after the entitlement, the, the social programs, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, they, they, you know, um, they talk just rhetoric and, uh, and this propaganda about you know waste and how how it's uh, so much waste in the government and stuff. But but when they really get down to what the, what the, where they're gonna look for savings, it's in the social program. And uh, it's just another ploy. And we should we should be able to see right through this thing. Um, I'm sure there's people who will be duped by that. But this this is uh, like she said, it's been going on since Ronald Reagan, and it's, uh, ever since FDR put in these social programs. Uh, the 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 rich one percent has been trying to, to get get it out of the budget and uh and uh streamline the budgets for corporate interest and uh so you know no one's fooled by this uh this 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 uh this must be defeated uh, uh thank you okay listen all your panelists. You're trying to tell you this is how they do it. These are the games that are being played. You detect it. Yes, Brother Hopkins, let me, let me, let me just, just, just sort of reiterate, re, re, reiterate something because I think it's important. You know, and this is additional stuff from the, fun, uh, the Sunlight Foundation. You talk about the fact that since 2012, on average, uh, corporations spend $5.8 billion on elections. Now, we talked earlier about in terms of buying politicians. When you spend that kind of money, clearly corporations are, in, are expecting something. Every time they spend $5.8 billion, at a minimum, they expect to reap $4.4 trillion on their investments. So that's so if they spend $5.8 billion, they get a return of $4.4 trillion. That's not bad at all. And so when we talk about corruption, we talk about fraud, then we understand that the, the, the way the system is set up, the politicians are already in place to play ball because they're already being brought. And so when you talk about the fact that people putting putting wrong figures down on paper, these contractors, that's not by coincidence. That's all by design. That's all part of the whole fraud process. And this is a fundamental problem that we're talking about. So we talk about this corruption and fraud is endemic to the capitalist system. Often we talk about places like Nigeria, we talk about the level of corruption. But we don't talk about corruption when it comes to America or we talk about England. We don't talk about that. We pretend like somehow that doesn't exist. But, it, but, but this, it, this corruption that's so endemic to these systems are part and parcel of how capitalism works. Also, when we talk about for every dollar these, the corporations spend on politicians to get a return of $760, well, clearly, you know, nobody's going to, no, nobody is going to and, and no corporation is going to invest any money if they're not sure that they're going to return on investment. So clearly, these politicians are very, very important to corporations in terms of ensuring that corruption and um, collusion thrives. Um, now, one thing I think I want people to do, and this is very important if they could, to read a book called Lucifer's Banker by Bradley Birkenfeld. And this is, exposes the, U, the UBS bank, Swiss, this is Swiss bank, 
of how to use assets for, the, for wealthy Americans to avoid paying taxes. Now, interestingly enough, France was considering an investigation into this affair. The U.S. intervened and said there'd be no investigation. Well, it's ironic that that same bank that's made it possible for rich Americans to hide their wealth to avoid taxes also funded the campaigns of Barack Obama and Mitch Romney. So we talk about the endemic corruption that exists in terms of capitalism, it's endemic. And this is why when you start talking about, you know, a, a, a more efficient, more realistic economy, then you've got to talk about the, we've got to talk about the, not the, the tax cut side, but the revenue side. The revenue side will get you to where you want to go. But, of course, given the endemic corruption, no one's going to talk about revenues. They're only going to talk about, about, about cuts. So this is the nature of the beast. Okay, Pamela's job well done. Let's move over to our next article for the day. As it relates to this thing, this is how they do it, the game being played. You know, many times when we talk about crime, we talk about violence, we always talk about the victims or we talk about individuals who are actually part of that particular process. But we very seldom really look at the real corporate behind it. Who created conditions, the scenarios for these things to take place? And that was a recent article titled, Black Victim of Kentucky Supermarket Shooting, Identified by Police. Uh, this article was written by Rutgers on October 25th, 2018. Let me just read the statement from this article. We would like to have a discussion in terms of who is the real perpetrator behind this particular crime. It says that a black man and woman were identified by police on Thursday as the two people shot dead at a Kentucky supermarket by a white male suspect who is reported to have told an armed bystander not to shoot him as whites don't kill whites. The subject identified as Gregory Bush 51 was in custody and facing multiple charges, including two accounts of murder and ten accounts of first-degree wanted endangerment. Jefferson Town Police said in a statement. Now, when we just look at the statement in terms of, number one, the theme that whites don't kill each other, it's really interesting in terms of where would someone get that idea from? And two, what has been the conditions that has been created now where it allows Europeans to openly feel comfortable with just outright shooting African people down? Brother Moses, give me a thought on this particular question, this article. Well, obviously, this white don't shoot whites is uh, was this is just uh, this white nationalist trying to get not to get shot, uh, uh, and um, you know, um, I, also it was interesting that he didn't get shot. I mean, that that so he he did get away, and um, you know, we we live in a. a a racist country, and uh, you know, people perpetuate racist ideas, and uh, and this is no no uh, mystery to it. Uh, he shot two black people, and uh, and and escaped in his car, and he, I don't think he ever got shot. So uh, I think if it had been a had been a, a, a different scenario for black people shooting white people. It would have been a different outcome, I think. But anyway, this is 
the double standard we are faced with. Thank you. Sister Eddie, your response to my statement in this article? Well, it, it, it just just like the brother just said, there's no other way to put it. Is that that's what they do? They take care of each other. It's not just some whites don't shoot whites. It's like whites give each other the jobs. We're the only ones that can't be united and and support each other. And, um, and so it's the theme of that's that's just what white folks take care of each other on all levels. You can take it even beyond. They don't shoot each other. Uh, they don't go and destroy each other. They don't. They just support each other. They're united. And it, I don't even think it. <laughs> I really don't think it's just as white nationalists. I think that's just the way that the the, the systems are in place for us whites. They understand it. And I always say to people, even the ones who are the quote liberal whites, they do the blink blink, <laughs> you know, winking at them, because they're the ones that from the Ku Klux Klan that started, they didn't start just on their own. They had people that were in high positions that helped them to get started to tear down Black Wall Street, to shoot up and mangle and start hanging people all over the South. That was not just something out of just that particular community. That was white folks being white folks. That's what they do. You know, Brother Zabari, we must understand, we know that criminals are not born, they are created. And you read this article, who is the major corporate when we talk about these kind of incidents? Where the blame really lies at, from your perspective? While we wait for Brother Zabari, Brother Anthony, can we get your response? Yes. Um... Actually, uh, this uh, this perpetrator, this European, uh, reflects a, an ignorance of uh, of even European history. I mean, uh, 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 whites kill whites all the time. It's just that because, uh, for the most part, they control the media. We don't always hear about it. But I mean, but 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 some of the worst wars in the history of the world were fought uh, fought among Europeans over control of somebody else's land, usually Africa, typically. But uh, any but either but in terms of uh, the, the the culprit, the culprit is uh, racism and capitalism. That's the real culprit, in my opinion. Um, and uh, just to add a little background, this article doesn't mention this, but this uh, but this uh, gunman tried to enter uh, a predominantly African church. He wasn't able to do so. And uh, you know, for whatever sets of reason, he he uh, he hates African people, and because he was able to get ready access to to weapons, he was able to act. On that hatred. Now, uh, now, 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 there. Now, now, this is not to say that there aren't, there, there, there probably aren't Africans that hate Europeans. There probably are, but the majority, woman majority, cannot do anything with that emotion except vent. And uh, uh, let's see. And this is a very dangerous situation. 
that with that that uh, that because of the political climate, Africans can be killed arbitrarily just because of their ethnicity. And uh, and that's and when you when you are disorganized, that's a lot harder to fight against than uh, than a situation which, you know, you know the motive of the person that's attacking you. Brother Haki, Brother Peter say everybody talking about crime, but tell me who are the real criminals. When we talk about the role of institutionalized racism, when we look at the individual who is now the president of the United States and him perpetuating, creating these conditions to make people feel comfortable or acting irresponsible. When you're talking about the history of the United States, for example, uh, during the Red Scare, the summer of 1919, and how they openly searched to shoot and kill African people, who's the real victim here? And who is the real corporate respons- responsible for these kind of behavior, from your perspective, Brother Haki? I think you raise a very good point, Brother Africa. I think we, we can't dismiss the history in terms of these problems, uh, particularly when we talk about institutions. Let's talk a little bit about the institution president of the United States. Uh, one of the things, when we go back to Ronald Reagan back in the mid-'80s, uh, one of the things that he was famous for was government, he stated government was the problem. In other words, the, the, the notion that laws, the government created laws favoring ethnic minorities was a source of, source of concern for a lot of people in society. And, of course, if you, you have to pretend to be racist, then you, you tend to believe that, in fact, the government policies favor ethnic minorities. George Bush, he talked about devolution. Remember that term devolution? Anybody, what the hell is devolution? Well, what he was talking about simply that America go back to an a, a earlier time in which things were good. Well, when he talked about when things were good, he wasn't talking about, you know, African people. He was talking about when a situation where African people knew their place. And that's what he was referring to. And then if we get back to those times, then things will be better for all. Of course, those races in society gravitated toward that message, and they, they understood precisely what he meant by devolution. We, of course, it brings us to, to the orange menace, Trump. Uh, he talks about make America great again. Well, what does he mean by make America great again? Clearly, when you look at the history of America, there's nothing great about it. Uh, the amount of exhortation, killing, um, uh, enslavement, all those kind of things, there's nothing great about it. But nonetheless, it's created a narrative which says that it's great. And then those, those poor white folks, or white folks generally, who believe that, uh, of course, see African people as the source of their problems. Now, in addition to that, Trump talks about nationalism. Well, what does he mean by nationalism? He knows damn well what he means by nationalism. He's saying that he's on his own concern about white people. Keep in mind, when the farmers in South Africa were being questioned about, you know, the possibility about, uh, you know, repitching that land to the African people who owns it, remember, Trump was the first to make a statement, you know, that uh, he's very much concerned about what's happening to whites in South Africa and that, you know, to, to put into action some kind of plan to penalize South Africa if, in fact, it moved toward repatriating the land to the, rich, to the original owners, which are African people. Uh, so clearly, white folks get the message that the African people are the enemy. I would say we, we sort of, um, as a people, we sort of, we sort of um, reinforce that message inadvertently when, when any time, because of our lack of organization and our lack of clarity and because we don't understand what's going on, that white folks also understand that, and they see it as a source of, uh, uh, not only as a source of weakness, but see it as indicative of a people you know, who are incapable of managing their own affairs. So to a large extent, we bring these problems down on ourselves because of our inability to organize and understand what's going on in society. So clearly, we can expect more of this. This is only the tip of the iceberg, Brother Africa. 
Okay, Pamela Jog, we are done. In terms of your final summation night, one minute more. Can you all find thoughts for tonight? We'll start with you, Brother Moses. Well, it's been a good, good evening. Uh, um, I hope that we can uh, get organized and uh, and fight some of this racism that's going on uh, because it takes organization to do it. And uh, uh, I'll just leave it right there. It's been a good night. I look forward to another. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Hanny, We have to keep doing what we're doing and we have to stay vigilant and teach each other and learn from each other and be consistent in information and education. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Haney. Brothers and Bobby, you'll find the thoughts for tonight. It's important for us to pursue that which is going to give us holistic liberation. Far too often, we're um, stuck in the matrix of propaganda that we're being bombarded with. We have to open up our eyes, do our research, and be diligent. Peace. Thank you, Brother Jabari. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, I'm certainly hoping that people begin to understand the urgency of the situation and begin to read more and to have these discussions around what's really going on and create institutions, uh, joint organizations that are, you know, are, you know, who are willing to confront these very vital issues. Uh, but in passing, I mean, in closing, Brother Africa, I, I simply say, as always, I encourage the audience, you know, to unravel the matrix. And you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night. My final thought for tonight is that we must get organized and we must study and that there's more to political involvement than voting. And I would urge all Africans to join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank you, all of my panelists. Thank the listening audience. We'd like to thank our supporters for supporting this program. And remind you that Africa on the Moon is a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Time. We'd like to remind you that we think it's important for you to um, be conscious of the different methods in terms of not only how they do it, but the games that are being played and how they are having an impact on you, our community, and all of humanity. Once we understand the realities in which we live in, we are now in a better position to change it. So until next time, let's continue to always subscribe to Go Forward Apple and Backwards Apple. We'll see you next week. Please share this with your friends and your network. And remember, you are listening to Africa on the Moon. I did.
from Portland. And if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African. So don't care where you come from. As long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality. Perhaps that's the identity of an African. Cause if you come from Trinidad, and if you come from
Is that comfortable for you, brother? Thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our central committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. 
Those who participated were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association uh, Convention yeah so many of them the National Baptist Convention <laughs> as a matter of fact if my memory serves me correctly now and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the struggle. Yeah. And of course, King lost. 
The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost her job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear 
as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day, when speaking to a sister who uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different. They have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just to run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. 
We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. <laughs> you African, yeah, where you were born, Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born, Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interest. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news. Those who's running for president can't... <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they are incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. 
After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education. But people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew it was a little girl. I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. 
Moving to the All African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibilities to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This united front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time, this was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? The one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was, I'm sorry, Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women, Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something, and the enemy will knock it down, and you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together, a lot of work, a lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life, really has, really has. 
the most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and... When I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, the uh, consular was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed that you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years, and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, in 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it the All-African People's Revolutionary Party because uh, from the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist, you can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend, but the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming, and you know, he's sentimental, minister, can quote Bibles, so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time. and. Uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his force had been coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Mohammed Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Mohammed Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. 
Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? It was 1984. It was 83 when did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan, our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. Right. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan, very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all, but even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago, where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, you old people, so before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago, yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? 
This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't buy this town for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded uh, Honorable Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience, so... He said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your, disp the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them. Really, I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you'll see everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You will look and you will see that. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism is chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964 in Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the Union and it splits, you understand? Which side of the fence you gonna be on? Because I know Jesse gonna be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew with the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. 
I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jax, uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet with me? I said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting. He'll meet with you. I arranged a meeting at Johnny Jacobs' uh, office here in New York, in Manhattan. The first time they met each other, I just sat in the background, talk, talk, talk. So well did our meeting go that Minister Louis Farrakhan and Johnny Jacobs signed a letter that day issuing a call for a united front among the political organizations in this country. We have it in our files. When the time comes, we will demonstrate this. The Urban League has a copy, Farrakhan has a copy, and Major Thatcher, Thatcher, Hatcher, Hatcher, <laughs> Hatcher from Gary has a copy because at that time he was head of the mayors and we were working with him, of course. Uh, of course, I went back to Africa. It didn't take me long before I heard all this nonsense about gutter religion, Judaism, gutter, or dirty religion, or whatever, whatever, and uh, Jesse having to uh, split from Farrakhan, and you know what happened. Of course, I knew it would happen. But when we were with uh, Jacobs, Minister Farrakhan, and myself, one of the things we agreed upon was that we must have the phone numbers of each other. They didn't even have each other's phone numbers. And we must have the house phone numbers. So that when we hear something on the radio that Farrakhan said this about Jacobs, before Jacobs attacks Farrakhan, Jacob will call Farrakhan and see if what the paper says is true. We agreed to this. We did agree to this. Of course, this was not written in the letter. This was a verbal commitment. But we're brothers. We can't lie. And I'm a revolutionary. I can't lie to you. Of course, when Jesse Jackson uh, made his split and the Zionists, once again, with a nice plot, did everything, Johnny Jacobs, without calling Minister Farrakhan to see if, in fact, he made the statement, what was the content in which the statement was made, wrote public articles condemning Minister Louis Farrakhan. Once again, Zionism had come to block and destroy the unity of the African community. We are not stopping. And the million and more march puts us properly in a position to create a united front in this country of the political organizations, given some semblance of unity and creating some atmosphere of unity where we can come to organize our people. I must tell you, the major enemy to our unity is Zionism. I tell you this as a result of over 30 years of constant struggle to organize and unify our people. I know them every step of the way. They are the slimiest slime that imperialism has ever produced. They will do everything to keep us divided. Want to run our own concepts for us, teach us. They fight to teach our children. Isn't that nice of them? Quite liberal. Quite liberal. Their job is to keep us enslaved. Their job is to control us. So that while controlling us, American imperialism and the right wing and the racist wing will be venting all their rage on us and on nobody else. But uh, we who are determined <laughs> see victory even in death. <laughs> Thank you.
who are going to have a united front. Our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, has decided to direct its attention for the next three years into two major areas. In the 1960s, when COINTELPRO broke down and destroyed many organizations, and they did, they also destroyed coordination between organizations. Thus today, there is no coordination between organizations, and people come to think that the struggle in America is not like it was in the 60s. Why, America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. The people are more politically conscious. The conditions are worse. When you have falling conditions of rising consciousness, you've got to have an explosion. You've got to have it. Either it will be instinct, which will be revolt, or either it will be reason and organized, which will be revolution. But you can be sure you're going to have an explosion. We say that people's consciousness are rising more and more. Even movements that we never thought about in the 60s, like the women's movement, the ecology movement, they are spreading everywhere. The right wing in this country has made a proper shift. It no longer sees minorities as their major enemy, nor the left wing. It sees the U.S. government as their major enemy. America is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. Africans have a particular responsibility here to the struggles of their people and to their future generations in directing this struggle to be nothing other than a revolutionary struggle. I mean this in every sense of the word. If you look throughout history, as a matter of fact, uh, two days ago I was in Ohio and a journalist asked me, what do you think is the greatest contribution that the Africans have made to America? I said, help to civilize it. <laughs> it's a fact. It's a fact. I know who I am. I know I'm equal to everybody else. They don't know it. They're the ones who have to be taught it, not me. Not me. So consequently, our job is to civilize America. If you look, this is exactly what we've been doing. Everywhere you see struggles for justice, you will see Africans out front, the first to die every time, in every battle. I mean, even go back to the American Revolution, Christmas Addicts. The first to die, instead of fighting with the Indians and joining up with the Indians of whooping George Washington. That's what he should have done. And that's why we must rectify the error today. Of course. Chinese say if you make an error, you know it's an error. You don't correct the error, you've made your second error. We have to correct that error. We're always on the front lines. Look at the history of the labor movement. Africans everywhere on the front lines. Look at the peace movement. They try to make it look like a white movement, but I know it was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that gave the slogan, Hell No, We Won't Go, and broke the draft in this country. And I know it was Martin Luther King who was the center of the peace movement in the anti-Vietnam War in this country. Once again, Africans up front in the fight for justice. Anywhere you look, you will see us up front. We're unconsciously up front. It is time for us to become consciously up front. This then is the task that we come to put before you, your responsibility. Every time we come here, we tell you this is our problem, this is our responsibility here. 
The capitalist system has but one job through its media. Make the Africans irresponsible. Make them frivolous. Make them hate themselves. Make them have low esteem of themselves. Just in one word, keep them demobilized and ineffective and tools for us when we need to exploit them and to turn them against their own people. This is their plan. We have to counteract this. We have to counteract this. And the television does it 24 hours a day, non-stop. We who say we are conscious cannot speak of being tired. As a matter of fact, even as a young boy, I remember sometimes seeing my father. You know, it's true, they don't make men the way they used to make them because I'll never be the man he was. <laughs> I'll never do what he did. I can't even try. <laughs> but I would see my father coming very, very tired from working, and I'd say to him, why don't you rest? He says, when I die, I will have enough time to rest. Uh, so from him, I've learned that. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. Yeah, because I can't rest now. I'm going to work myself to death for my people. I know if I can't rest now, I know I'm going to rest. <laughs> and I'm not like Martin Luther King. He sang free at last. I'm going to sing, I'm so glad I laid this burden down. <laughs> but until I lay it down, I ain't going to make one squeak about it. I'm going to carry it with my head up, just like my grandmother carried her head up on plantations. Your job as the conscious is to make our unconscious conscious of their unconscious movements. This can only be done in organization. This can only be done in organization. We repeat it over and over again. Every time you see an intelligent man, intelligent woman, they don't attack the enemy unless they have some force behind them. I sometimes look at our brothers who go to jail. By themselves, they think they're going to go to jail and take on the enemy. Me? I've been to jail many, many times in my life, all over the world. And every time I've been to jail, all I do is get one message out to one member, any member of my organization, and my task is finished. My job is finished. My organization knows I'm in jail. Either I get out, they fight to get me out, they can't get me out, I'm organizing in jail. But I ain't got to worry about no courts, no judges, no lawyers. The organization going to do that. That's why you need organization. The police arrest me tonight. By the morning, I'm walking out of jail, and the police going to be in trouble. Yeah, because they're going to find, they're going to find, they're going to find, look here. Why you show you a little tactic? When America bombed Libya in 1986, a member of our Central Committee then by the name of Bob Brown, we sent him quickly to Libya to see what was happening. He got an American passport. Now, if you got an American passport, you got the right to enter any European country and stay there for three months without a visa. You understand that? Now, these little Swiss people, because we had pictures of Gaddafi we wanted to show. We wanted to make sure we're in harmony with the work they were doing. So he had Gaddafi's pictures in his uh, briefcase. They stopped him, deported him, sent him back to France without even giving him a chance to make a telephone call. Could you imagine how crazy we were? We didn't know where the brother was. You understand? When he explained to us what happened, we had to teach the Swiss a lesson. So he gets a little lesson, no big problem. 
They arrested him on a Wednesday and on a Tuesday evening, deported him, all that, and Wednesday. We got the news. Wednesday evening, we made a plan. On Thursday morning, we want everyone in the party to call comrades and allies and every friend they know and have them call the Swiss Embassy nonstop. Ask them one question, why did you arrest Bob Brown? That's all. The Swiss Embassy did no work that Thursday. None whatsoever at all. And the act is a legal act. Quite legal. We did it Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday, we sent them a telegram. Anytime you see an African anywhere in the world coming to Switzerland and he has legal papers, don't mess with him. He might be Bob Brown, who represents Africans who've had clashes with American capitalism in over 267 cities. We're sure the Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.